a work that the gospel would mark everything that we do, that it would be as a sign on our hands so that when we exercise our skill or power, we would do so in a Christ-like way, a self-sacrificial way that benefits others. And Lord, we pray that you would make the good news of Jesus Christ like frontlets on our forehead so that whatever we see, whatever we look at, whatever, whatever we experience, we filter this through the lens of the gospel. Lord, we ask that you do these things for the glory of your great name and that we might be people who are consecrated to you, set apart, devoted to your cause. And Lord, we pray that through all this, you would enable us to worship you with our whole hearts, love you with our whole hearts, and we pray that in doing so, as Jonathan prayed, the faith would indeed be passed to the next generation. All these things, Lord, we commit to you in the name of Christ and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. I'd invite you to open this morning to Exodus chapter 13. And as you're turning there, perhaps you've heard this story that Tim Keller told about how he was greeting people at the back of the church as people were leaving, and he, and he met a woman that he had never seen before. And as he greeted her, he asked her, what, what brought you to Redeemer? This was when Tim Keller was the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. And the lady said, well, it's, it's kind of a long story. And he said, I'd love to hear it. And so she began to relate how at her, at her place of work, she had made a terrible mistake, a mistake that would have cost the company an enormous amount of money, a mistake that would have cost her her job. And when she went to her boss and explained to him what had happened, he said to her, you know, you don't have the standing and the capital in the company to sustain this hit but I do. And so we are going to treat this as my fault. And I am going to take responsibility for this. And she related how she asked her boss, why are you doing this? And he said, because I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. And he took the hit from me. And she then said, where do you go to church? And the answer was Redeemer Presbyterian Church. So for this man, this unnamed man in this story, this is someone who is seeing life through the lens of the gospel. And then as he does things in life, it's as though the gospel, the good news of Christ, Christ's death on behalf of sinners, on behalf of us, is marking his hand in what he does. As, as we approach Exodus chapter 13, you know, we've seen how uh, the, the Passover has happened and Israel has been liberated from slavery in Egypt through the, the death of the Egyptian firstborn and through the lambs that were slain whose blood was put on the doorposts and on the lintel of their houses. And so they have now come out of Egypt. And in Exodus chapter 13, the Lord is going to give to Moses, to, through Moses to Israel, instructions that will enable them to be, we might say, Passover people. And if we were to translate that in the New Covenant terms, he's giving them instructions that will enable them to be gospel 
people. And so in, in verses 1 and 2, we have this overarching command. And, and this command arises from the way that because the Lord provided a substitute, the lamb, for the firstborn of Israel. So just to make sure everybody's tracking with what we're talking about here, on the night of the Passover, the Israelites had slain a lamb, and the blood of that lamb was put on their doorposts and their lintel, and that made it so that the firstborn within their homes did not die. And in that way, it's as though God has redeemed all the firstborn of Israel, and they now belong to him. Look at what he says here in Exodus chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. So because the firstborn of Israel belong to him, they are to be consecrated. And that word means set apart, devoted to his use. It's as though the firstborn are now being treated as holy. And so we can say, what has been redeemed belongs to Yahweh. And Paul is operating on these very same categories in 1 Corinthians. And Peter operates on these categories when he writes to the churches in 1 Peter. But you remember that Paul, in addressing the sexual immorality of the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, he says to them, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. You have been ransomed. And then in chapter 7, verse 23, he says it again. You don't belong to yourself. You have been redeemed. You've been bought with a price. And, and so what Paul seems to be doing is he's saying what applied to Israel's firstborn applies to everybody that belongs to Jesus. Everybody that belongs to Jesus, the blood of Christ has been poured out on their behalf. And so they are to consecrate themselves to the Lord. We are to consecrate ourselves to the Lord. And so I, I would just urge you to, to, to take in your mental conception of yourself, in your imagination of who you are and of what your life is about and of what your, your ambitions are. And, and over all of that, put the word, put a word like consecrated, devoted, redeemed. You belong to God. You belong to God. If you're a believer in Jesus, you belong to God. And everything that you do is to be done for his sake. And then in verses 3 and 4, Moses gives instructions that pertain to maintaining this perspective. Look at verse 3. Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So they are being called to remember the night of the Passover, the day that they were brought out of Egypt, the day that they were redeemed. And, and this call to remember is going to be significant as we continue into the Feast of Unleavened Bread because I think it's going to inform and ultimately be ful fulfilled in the way that Jesus will say to his people, you, you celebrate this feast that I'm giving to you in remembrance of me. So the, the remember theme is, is very important for us. Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. 
today in the month of Abib, you are going out. So there are three references there to them coming out of Egypt, the Lord bringing them out of Egypt, and then them going out of Egypt in verses 3 and 4. And all of that is dependent upon what the Lord did for them on the night of the Passover. So we want to be consecrated to the Lord, and we want to remember why we're consecrated to the Lord, don't we? So we want to be people who are constantly going back to the gospel. We want to be people who, as we think about our lives, as we think about our identity, as we think about what we're perceiving, what we're experiencing, what we're trying to accomplish, we want to be people who are saying, what does it look like to be devoted to the Lord? What does it look like to live out the gospel, to, to take up my cross and follow Jesus by, by sacrificing my interests, my preferences, my desires for the benefit of someone else? You know, if, if we approach life this way, we won't have any of, any of those how much is too much or how far is too far questions that we have to answer, will we? How much, how much secular music is too much? That question becomes irrelevant if you're consecrated, if you're devoted to the Lord. How much physical interaction is too much prior to marriage? If you're consecrated to the Lord, those questions are already answered if you're devoted to the Lord. And, and the way to persist in devotion to the Lord is to remember that you've been redeemed. You've been ransomed, and therefore you belong to him. That brings us to verses 5 through 10 where we get the Feast of Unleavened Bread introduced. And I want to draw your attention to the way that verses 5 through 10 and 11 through 16 begin the same way. So if you look at verse 5, we read here, And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service. Okay, so basically, when the Lord brings you into the land of promise. Look down at verse 11. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you. So those when the Lord brings you in statements, they begin these next two units. And I want to suggest to you that at the center of both of these units is a statement about how you instruct your children. So verse 8, you shall tell your son on that day. And then down in verse uh, 14, when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean, you shall say to him. So these two units, uh, 5 through 10 and 11 through 16, they both begin with a statement about when the Lord brings them in, and they center on a statement about instructing the children. So let's look together at verses 5 through 10. I've already read uh, verse 5, so I just want to note how at the end of verse 5, it says, you shall keep this service in this month. And that's going to link up with verse 10. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. So this is obviously looking forward. This is, they've just come out of Egypt. They've gotten out into the wilderness. They are about to make their way toward the land of promise. And the Lord is telling them, when you get into the land, this is what you're to do to celebrate the Passover. And he instructs them in verse 6, Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. 
Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. So the instruction is, you're not to eat unleavened bread. The rationale for this is not spelled out, I think, because it's obvious from the context. In the context, we've just read how at the Passover, Israel did not have time to allow the leaven to work its way through the bread because they had to leave Egypt in haste. They, they, they fled from Egypt. And so the, the commemoration of this, of not, of, of not having any leaven anywhere in their households for seven days, they're celebrating the way that the Lord brought them out of Egypt and the way that, that they had to flee in haste. So they're remembering this, and then it's almost as though they're reenacting it every year as they celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then verse 8. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. So the, the children of Israel are to hear from their fathers. The sons of the Israelites are to hear from their fathers, I was a slave in Egypt. I was brutally treated. I was subjected to harsh labor. And the Lord mercifully redeemed me. And that's why we celebrate this feast. We eat this unleavened bread because of the way that the Lord brought us out of slavery. And, and there's just an easy application for us in the gospel, isn't there? I was a slave to sin. I, I, I could not help myself. I could not make myself righteous before God. And God sent his son and showed his love for the world such that even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is, this is what we're to be communicating to our children now that the, the Exodus and the Passover have been fulfilled in Christ. And then look at verse 9. And it shall be to you. Now, first question, what shall be to you? I think it's the Feast of Unleavened Bread that's, that's being referenced. But what's the Feast of Unleavened Bread about? Well, it's about the hasty departure from Egypt. And what's that about? Well, it's about their liberation from slavery. And what's that about? Well, it's ultimately about God's love for his people and the way that he, he overcame Pharaoh and all the gods of Egypt and defeated them and showed his love for Israel by liberating them and, and bringing them out that they might serve him. It, all of that, we might say, we might say the, pa the Passover and all its meaning. Or in New Covenant terms, we might just say the gospel. It shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes. There are, I think, there are three places in the Old Testament where this kind of statement is made. The first one is here in Exodus 13, and then the second one is uh, what we saw in the call to worship in Deuteronomy 6, and the third one is what was read as the Old Testament reading in Deuteronomy 11. And you may be aware that that gave rise to this Jewish practice of, um, of, of wrapping these leather strips around their arms, and then attached to these leather strips would be these little leather boxes into which they would put uh, scraps of Bible verses. And so they would, they, they, would, they would, I think they call it laying tefillim. They would, you know, wrap these things around their arms, and they would literally bind on their hands these little phylacteries with Bible verses in them, and the same thing, they would wrap it around their foreheads. That would be a literal attempt to obey what is stated here, and I think it would fail 
to understand what Moses is communicating here. I don't think it's God or Moses' intention to say, get tattoos on your hands or wrap leather straps around your hands uh, that, that communicate Bible verses. No, in, in the Bible, your hand is often something that communicates your skill or your power or, or your work, what you do. And, and I think what's being communicated is that what you've experienced at Passover is to be as a sign on your hand. It's to be evident in the way that you live. The fact that you were a slave, that God mercifully freed, this should come out in everything that you do. So that maybe when the shifts are being divvied up and nobody wants a particular shift, maybe it's somebody that's experienced this kind of divine love who's ready to say, I'll take that one. I'll do that. And, and, you know, maybe when the assignments are being doled out and nobody wants a particular assignment, maybe it's, it's a, somebody who's experienced the gospel in this way who's ready to say, I'll do that job. All kinds of ways that the gospel, the knowledge of what God has done for us in Christ, can be as a sign on our hand. And then uh, as a memorial between your eyes. Um, there, there's going to be a different term used later in the passage that, that communicates a very similar idea, but here, a memorial between your eyes, I, I think it's, it's as though Moses is saying, you put this between your eyes so that when you look at the world, you, you remember the Passover, so that everything that you perceive, everything that you see, you see it, as it were, through the lens of what God did for us at the Exodus. That's how you read the world. You interpret the world as someone who was a slave that got mercifully liberated by God's mercy and powerful grace. And, and this is, again, just, I think, natural to translate into New Covenant terms and say, we look at the world as people who have experienced the gospel. We, we want to increasingly put to death the tendency, when we look at the world, to ask, what's in it for me? What can I get out of this? How can I benefit? What's an angle that I, can, that I can work to my advantage? More and more, we want to be people who look at the world and say, how can I live out what Jesus did? How can I have this mind in myself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of, of a servant and becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. How, how do I, how, when I look at the world, how do I make sure that that's what I'm thinking about? I think that's what Moses is after here when he says, it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes. And then look, look at the next clause in verse 9, that the Torah of Yahweh, the word law is the Hebrew word Torah. It's not just legislation. It all it's also communicates instruction that the, that the instruction of Yahweh, the, the Torah of the Lord, may be in your mouth. So you put it on your hand, you put it between your eyes, so that it will be in your mouth. And, and I think there's a progression. If you act this way, if you see the world this way, people are probably going to say to you, why are you doing this? Why did you make that choice? Why did you take that assignment? 
And then it's going to be your opportunity to say, well, I was a slave to sin. And while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me and, and made it so that I could be a slave to righteousness. And this is the way that Jesus lived. Jesus laid himself down for others, and I'm trying to follow him and lay myself down for others. For with a strong hand, at the end of verse 9, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall, shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread commemorates the hasty departure from Egypt. It provides an opportunity to teach the children. It marks the hand of the Israelite. It filters perception, and it fills the mouth. Verse 11. This is sort of a second run at the same kind of thing. Only this time we're not dealing with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We're dealing with the redemption of the firstborn. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Okay, so uh, again, because the Lord redeemed the firstborn of Israel through the death of the Passover lamb, all the firstborn of Israel are going to belong to him. I think verse 13 uh, is, is illustrating what you do with an unclean animal. So the clean animals, you sacrifice them to the Lord. The unclean animals, you don't offer those in sacrifice. You redeem those. Verse 13, every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. So clean animals you sacrifice to the Lord. Unclean animals you redeem with a lamb. And then firstborn uh, of the sons, you redeem them with a, with, with a lamb. And then we get the instruction for the children again in verse 14. And when in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. Now, that, I think that's a, like a, a, an abbreviated statement that is meant to, to signal you communicate the whole story of the Passover. You, you, you teach your children the story of what God did for Israel. And, and it's in some ways um, elaborated upon in verse 15. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. And then here's this statement again in verse 16. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. So again, the redemption of the firstborn is to retell the story of what God did for Israel at the Exodus. It, it's, it's as though every time there's a firstborn animal, we have an opportunity again to tell the story of what God did at the Exodus. Every time there's a firstborn child in, in a family, we have another opportunity to tell the story of what God did for Israel at the Exodus. And there's a principle of substitution for us here that, that is very important for what we believe because the lamb is dying in place of the firstborn, just as the Passover lamb died in place of the firstborn of the houses of Israel. Later in Israel's history, in Numbers 11, I'm, I'm sorry, Numbers 3, verse 11, 
the Lord is going to take the Levites in place of the firstborn. And yet, that doesn't mean that they don't continue to redeem the firstborn. Over in the Gospel of Luke, we read about the Lord Jesus. When the time came, this is Luke chapter 2, verse 22, when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So uh, Mary and Joseph, they, they fulfilled this requirement with the Lord Jesus. So again, with the redemption of the firstborn, with, with that practice being a mark on their hand, we see again this, this gospel principle, substitutionary sacrifice, and God's gracious redemption is to mark everything that they do. And then frontlets between your eyes, it's to mark everything that they see, inform all that they see. So I think that what Moses is saying to Israel here is you need to be Passover people. And you need to keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And you need to redeem the firstborn so that you have all these constant opportunities to rehearse the details of the Passover. And in response to that, it's easy for us again to say, isn't it? We want to be gospel people. We want to be people for whom what Christ did for us is the most prominent reality in our thinking. It forms and shapes our identities and choices. And then we come to this closing section of the chapter, which has to do with the way that the Lord leads the people of Israel. So in verses 17 and 18, we read, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, Lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. And, and I think it's natural for us to draw a conclusion uh, like, like from, from these two verses along these lines. God, God may have very good reasons for taking us the long way. I mean, Israel, there was a short way up. But the Philistines were there, and they would have fought Israel, and Israel might have, might have quailed in the face of battle and returned to Egypt. Also, the Lord intends to destroy Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. And so they can't go the short way. They've got to go in direction of the Red Sea. And, and so I suspect that for, for, for many in Israel, there was a lot of muttering, and there was a lot of, what are we doing? Where are we going? Isn't that the most natural route? And, and for Moses, I think, he would have had to say, we're following that cloud. We're following that pillar. That's our job. That's what we're doing. We read next in verse 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you. And you shall carry up my bones with you from here. This reaches all the way back to Genesis 50, verse 25, where Joseph had made the people of Israel swear to take his remains up out of Egypt with them. And, and we talked about this some when we were at the end of Genesis. 
I think the reiteration of this points to the way that Egypt is like a symbol of the unclean realm of the dead, almost like Sheol. And so for the bones of Joseph to be brought out of the realm of the dead and, and to be taken to the realm of life where God is going to dwell with his people, this is, I think, communicating a hope that there will be a resurrection in which, uh, in, in, a, in a resurrected body, Joseph will enjoy the realization of the promise of that land to God's people. Verse 20, they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So the Lord is leading them and his leadership is obvious. They can see it with their eyes. They can see the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, even though it might not make sense to their minds. Again and, the, again, and again, the Bible calls, God, the, the, Bible calls the people of, of God to do things that may not necessarily make sense from, from the perspective of the world, to go, go in ways or to take routes that would not make sense calculated in worldly terms. But the Lord knows what he's doing. The Lord is leading these people to the Red Sea. And, and, and the Lord knows that Pharaoh and his army are going to follow. And he's setting up a place, a, a, a situation, where when the people cry out in 1411, saying, is it because there, was no, there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Moses is going to be ready to say to them in verse 13, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. And then verse 14, the Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. This is what the Lord does for Israel as they faithfully follow him. And I think that this whole uh, picture of the people following the pillar of fire and cloud receives its fulfillment when the Lord Jesus says in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We're not necessarily on a march through the wilderness to a particular land that has been promised to the patriarchs. We are on a march through the wilderness to the new Jerusalem, the city that has foundations. And as we make our way, we are to be the people who are following the light of the world. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus, what we want to say to you is, you can follow Jesus. You can have the light of the world leading you. And, and you, your life can be a life that was redeemed by the blood of Christ. And you can be somebody who's consecrated to the Lord. Somebody who lives for God. Some, somebody who doesn't just live a life of vanity and meaninglessness, but somebody whose hand is marked by the glory of Christ and what he did for his people. Somebody whose perceptive capacities are such that you filter everything through the glory of Christ, the, the, the living God who gave himself for his people. You can have this kind of life if you're ready to turn from your sins and put your hope and trust in Jesus and be consecrated to him, 
redeemed by him. And we would love to talk to you about this after the service. You can come find me. You can, you can probably talk to the person next to you about this. We would love for you to become a believer in the Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you'd give us remembrance. Make it, Lord, so that we never forget what Christ has done for us. And, Lord, we also pray that as we follow Jesus, the light of the world, it would be obvious to us what it looks like for the gospel to be a sign on our hands, frontlets between our eyes. Lord, we pray that through this, you would make us people who, who gladly choose what is right, who happily serve others, people who are delighted to turn away from wickedness because we know where life is. Lord, we pray that you would do all this in us through the good news of the gospel. And we pray that you'd be glorified by it. In Christ's name, amen.